The Guinness Book of World Records listed Marilyn Voss Savant as the owner of the highest IQ score. And she made that into a career, as you might suspect. She wrote a column for Parade Magazine that appeared every Sunday, and I used to read it all the time. It was just called Ask Marilyn, and people would send in questions to her, and she'd ask them, now answer them. Now, most of the, the questions that she answered were, were like puzzles or riddles or, or math problems, that kind of stuff. But I remember at one time when somebody sent in a more philosophical question, and here it was, what do you think is the source of moral authority? Now, before we ask what the genius thought the answer to that question is, I'm curious what you and I, ordinary people, think. I mean, how would you answer that question? What is the source of your moral authority? What's the source of society's moral authority? Do we have one? It seems like a pretty important question to be able to answer. And yet, surprisingly, most people don't have an answer. So Marilyn Vosavant answered this question. And the way she answered it is said, hey, look, most people appeal to religion to answer it, but, but not me. Instead, she said, I look back through history. And the reason that she wanted to go back through history and, and, and kind of find the lessons in history that would be the source of her moral authority is, is she said that had an advantage over religion because she got to pick and choose. So here's kind of her answer to the question. What's your source of moral authority? Well, Marilyn Vosavant's source of moral authority is, now wait for it, it is Marilyn Vosavant, right? I mean, you see it, right? Because she liked history over religion as a source of authority because it allowed her to pick and choose. So she was her own source of moral authority, which is the predicament our world finds itself in. And to be frank, it's not really a new predicament. If you go back in Israel's history to one of its darkest moments, the book of Judges says this is true about that time. All the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. So in other words, each person was their own source of moral authority, right? It could have been thousands of years ago in the ancient Near East, or it could be today in our world. But, but when you think you're the source of your own moral authority, it doesn't go well. It never has gone well, but it is where we find ourselves. And if you doubt that, listen to Christian Smith. He's a acclaimed sociologist, and he's probably done the best study on, on a longitudinal study where he followed kids that grew up in church through high school and college and into their 20s. And remember, these are church kids of all different kinds of, of faiths. And, and what he noticed is that when they got into their 20s, they, they really weren't able to speak very confidently uh, about moral issues. They weren't able to make moral judgments. They were very uncomfortable talking about morality. And here are some of the, the things that they said to him. It's all in his book called Lost in Translation. He, he, they said, it's personal. So what's your source of moral authority? How do you decide right and wrong? It's personal. Or it's up to the individual. Who am I to say? Or here's one. I mean, I guess what makes something right is how I feel about it, but different people feel different ways, so I couldn't speak on behalf of anyone else as to what's right and wrong. I mean, you understand that, right? I'm sure many of you read that and go, yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's not just true of people in their 20s, it's people of, of all generations. I, I kind of, this is what seems right to me, but I don't know. Proverbs 14, 12. 
There is a way that seems right to a person, but eventually it ends in death. When everybody acts as their own source of moral authority, eventually it ends in death. See, it's not a very encouraging picture. We need someone who, outside of us, who can tell us what is true, who can tell us what is right and wrong. See, if right and wrong aren't things that we just come up with ourselves, if, 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 if morality and justice are not something that we can just come up with, who is going to determine it for me? I mean, is it going to depend on what culture I live in? Like, well, you're in this culture, so you have your own right and wrong, and you're in this culture, so it's different. Or is it who has the most votes? Or, or is it who has the most power? I mean, how do you decide? A poet named W.H. Auden uh, wrote this, British poet. I think it's really well put, but he kind of gets the problem down to where we can really understand it. He said, if, as I am convinced that Nazis are wrong and we are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? I mean, you see what he's saying here, right? He goes, look, I know the Nazis are wrong. They did horrific atrocities. I mean, it was, it was horrible what they did. And my moral instinct, my moral compass tells me that's wrong. But if you ask me why it is wrong, it's hard because they thought it was right. I think it's wrong. So is there anything that validates mine and invalidates theirs? There's a practice, or used to be a practice, it's been outlawed now, in certain parts of India where the Hindu religion had grown. And, and there was a, a kind of a religious custom that when a man died, he would be put on a funeral power, pyre, his dead body burned. And they would take the widow and put her alive on that same funeral pyre. Right or wrong? I mean, aren't you like Auden, the poet? You, you want to scream, that's wrong, but their culture says it's okay. So how do you know? Or what about female genital mutilation? Some cultures say that's okay. Do you think it's okay? A slavery. Some cultures say it's okay. Some parts of history say it's okay. What do you think? Why do you think that? See, is there any way to define right and wrong beside myself, outside of myself, outside of my culture? The thing is, we live in a moment right now where people are all convinced that there is a right and wrong. We're constantly screaming at each other. We're right and they're wrong. And that they might change from time to time, but the constant argument is we're right about racial justice or economic justice and, and they are wrong. And those arguments happen about abortion or sexuality or vaccine mandates or parental influence in schools or gun control. So we live in this weird situation where everybody is really sure there's a right and wrong. We're all yelling about it, but we don't have anything to base our, our conviction about what's right and wrong outside of ourselves, outside of our own opinion. So in that kind of world, here's what wins power. Whoever has the most power gets to enforce their vision of right and wrong on everybody else. So you might look in the university system. You might look to, to gain power there. Maybe it's to be a chairman of a department or to be in the dean's office or to climb the, the ranks. Maybe it's not just in universities, it's in corporations. I want to see on the corporate board because then I can uh, influence the direction this place goes and we can have a more just corporation. It's not just corporate board, though. It's school board seats. 
I want to be on the school board so I can enforce my vision of what's right and wrong. Whoever has the most power wins. I want the seat on the Supreme Court. I I want to get the most money because whoever has the most money, that's the one who will win in the political argument. See, do you see what's happening in the absence of an objective moral truth? In, in the absence of being able to answer the question, what is the source of your moral authority? And it's outside of ourselves and it's binding on everyone. In the absence of that, it all comes down to who can get the most power. Now, now does, the Bible, does the Bible offer an alternative vision to might makes right? Does the Bible offer an alternative vision that is not based on who has the most power? Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. No, we could preach a whole year of sermons just on this verse. There is so much truth packed into it. But, But just a couple observations. We are created by God. That means that we are not free agents. He is our moral authority. Every human being is created by God. We have to give an account to him. We don't determine the day we were born. We don't determine the day we die. And more than that, it says that every human being was created in the image of God. Every single human being, no exceptions, And that means that every single human being has been given by God a a life in his image that is worthy of, of, of respect. That every human being has a life that has value and, and meaning. Now we take that for granted. We take it for granted that the, the prince and the pauper should both be treated fairly and equally. And yet, And yet we shouldn't take it for granted because there are times in human history where this was a radical idea. When Genesis 1.27 was written, it was believed that only the Pharaoh, only the king was made in the image of God. So the Bible coming along and saying every human is made in the image of God was was radical, world-changing kind of stuff. See, they thought the king was made in the image of God, but not ordinary people. Ordinary people didn't matter. Ordinary people were expendable. Listen to how Jordan Peterson talks about the effect of Christianity had in the world. Now, I'm not exactly sure why, but every time I quote Jordan Peterson, I get tons of email. Uh, I guess he's a very polarizing figure, right? So I, I, I knew I was going to quote him, so I set aside time tomorrow to respond to your emails, okay? Just, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that I believe everything Jordan Peterson says. I'm not saying he's all bad either, right? He's just a dude. All right, here we go. But, but this is pretty insightful. I do think that. Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. It is in fact nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious revelation. That's how he's referring to Christianity there. Such that the ownership and absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. So so now this next sentence that Peterson has is really important. We forget that the opposite was self-evident throughout most of human history. 
Andy Stanley is right to point us to this and say, we've got to slow down here and think about what it's saying. We forget that the opposite was self-evident throughout most of human history. What's a synonym for self-evident? Obvious, inescapable, incontestable, indisputable. I mean, you get the point, right? When when something is self-evident, it is so obvious to you that you assume that everyone else believes it too. You can't believe they don't see it like you do because it's so obvious, right? So how could they possibly be missing it? And yet in the ancient world, what what was self-evident is that some people could own other people. Aristotle, I'm sure you've heard of him, one of the great philosophers of the world. He said that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Do you see what he's saying? I mean, this is just absolutely obvious to Aristotle. One of the smartest people, it's just obvious. It is self-evident that some people are created to rule, some people are created to be ruled. And yet we rightly reject it because it contradicts Genesis 1.27. It contradicts what God says. We rightly reject a lot of things that other people at other times of history, even today, think are obvious. We, we, the, the ancient world thought it was self-evident that men were superior to women. We reject it. Or that there were double standards for marital fidelity inside of a, a, a marriage. We, we reject that. The ancient world thought it was self-evident. It was obvious that, of course, you could commit infanticide and leave a child exposed to the elements to die after birth. It's just obvious. Of course you can. They couldn't see it any other way. Look at this letter from a Roman soldier on the front back to his wife. He says, know that I'm still in Alexandria and do not worry if they, he's referring to the army, wholly set out, I'm staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child. And if I receive my pay soon, I'll send it up to you. So you can just see this is the normal conversation that might appear in a letter between this Roman soldier to this wife at home. It's in June 1st, uh, 1 BC, right? So, So this is a real letter, a real historical document. And just in the course of the letter, he says, above all, if you bear a child and it's a male, let it be. If it's female, cast it out. Baby girls. Expendable. Disabled children, expendable. Oh, this wasn't done in secret, like, hey, don't tell anybody because we're afraid of being arrested and prosecuted. No, it was completely acceptable. It was self-evident. It was unquestioned. It was just obvious that the powerful could take advantage of the vulnerable. But what the culture calls self-evident, what the culture calls obvious, the Bible calls unjust. It was a few years ago, probably two, three years ago, a guy uh, sends me an email and he says, you know, I feel like the prayers in church, the readings, they've, they've just gotten more political. And I was like, political? Okay, well, I, what does he mean? And I know this is a really good guy. So I email him back like, well, what do you mean? And can you give me any examples? And he goes, well, yeah, for example, this last Sunday or a couple Sundays before he wrote the email, he said, you know, we're praying about justice and oppression and stuff like that. And it just seems really political. And I was like, hmm, okay. Uh, I tell you, tell you what, 
why don't you go to BibleGateway.com, which is just a Bible search engine, and look up justice and oppress. And then let me know what you find. And because he's a really good guy, I knew he'd do it, and he did. He wasn't trying to be in an argument. He was trying to find the truth. So he put those two words in the search engine, and he sends me back an email that says, man, justice and oppression are everywhere in the Bible. And I go, yeah. And he says, these are the ones that stood out to me. Here are some of my favorites in them. But, but do you see the problem? That we've been so discipled by the media. We've been so discipled by uh, our phone. We've been so discipled by cable news. We've been so discipled by politics. We've been so discipled by those that champion our cause that we think of justice and oppression as political terms when they're biblical terms. See, before, before justice and, and, and oppression ever got into politics, they started in the Bible. And, and if you take that challenge and you go look up everywhere justice is used in the Bible, here's what you're going to find. That a lot of times, wherever justice is used, it mentions four specific groups of people. Immigrants, the poor, widows, and orphans. Now, why those four groups? Why widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor? Well, I think because in that society, but probably in every society, those are the people that are the most vulnerable. Let me show you an example. Here's Zechariah. Don't mistreat widows or orphans or foreigners or anyone who is poor. So you see the, the, the four groups right there and stop making plans to hurt each other. See, in those pre-modern agrarian societies, the, the, the widow, the orphan, the, the, the immigrant, the poor, they were just barely making it. So anytime there was war or famine or any kind of unrest, they, their, their life would collapse. They very, very well die. And we could add to that list. We get a refugee, prisoner, disabled, unborn, sing, some single uh, parents, the elderly. See, when, when, when you live in a world where power wins, then the weak and the vulnerable, they're the ones that are gonna lose. But God is on their side. God is on their side. Psalm 146, God upholds the cause of the oppressed. God gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. See, God is on the side of the weak and the vulnerable. God is on the side of those that society has overlooked and marginalized. God is on the side of those who don't have power. And therefore, the Bible says, so should you and I be on their side. Proverbs 31, speak up. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. See, when it tells us to speak up for the vulnerable, what it's telling us to do is to, to, to publicly advocate, to go to bat for, to come to the aid of those who are weak and vulnerable. Because God cares about them. And if God cares about them, you and I should care about them. Hey, Dr. King understood this. At Ebenezer Baptist Church, when he was preaching there on July 4th, 1965, he said, we must never forget this as a nation. So here's something our nation cannot forget. And that is that there are no gradations in the image of God. 
Every human being is created in the image of God. Some are not more in the image of God and some are not less in the image of God. Every human being is created in the image of God. And when we forget that, we begin to take advantage of the vulnerable. We begin to use our power for self-interest. In 1968 in Memphis, the sanitation workers went on strike because two of their fellow workers had been crushed in one of the uh, trash trucks. They were on strike. They were protesting in the streets and they asked Dr. King to come and join the protest. He did. Tragically, it was in Memphis in 1968 that he was assassinated. This was the last protest that he ever took part of. This is a picture from the protest. Notice the people and, and, and what their argument is rooted in. It's a simple message they have. They're carrying on those signs. It just says, I am a man. What's that, what's that referring to? It's referring to Genesis 127. God created every human being in his image. If you take away Christianity, if you take away Genesis 1.27, then what does that matter? What does it matter? Because somebody else has more power than you. So what does it matter that you are a human being? But because of Christianity, this is an argument that strikes truth. I'm a man. I'm not some evolved animal. There are no gradations in the image of God. So the good news is that there is a moral authority outside of us. The good news is that there is a moral authority outside of our culture. It is God. God is the source of our moral authority made known through Jesus and in the scriptures. And God, he loves justice. In Jesus, God identifies with the poor and the vulnerable. Jesus is born to a poor family. He lives with the marginalized and those who are on the outcasts of society. His death came as a miscarriage of justice. He died a violent death, naked and penniless. Jesus was the victim of an unjust, corrupt system. And we as Christians recognize that apart from Jesus, we are poor and powerless, that we too are, are enslaved to sin. And God saved us. God saved us by becoming oppressed for us. God saved us by taking the injustice on himself. So a Christian that does not care about justice, a Christian that refuses to speak up for the vulnerable, a Christian who refuses to, to work for those that everybody else has overlooked, at best, at best that person is inconsistent and out of step with Jesus. No, 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 there is a danger if you care about justice. There is a danger here. No matter if you think of yourself on more the right or the left or the center, there's a danger for every person that cares about justice. There's a temptation lurking in our heart that we have to be alert to. And that is this. In the name of justice, you will do unjust things. In the name of justice, you will become what you hate. If you've read Lord of the Rings, this makes total sense to you. And if you haven't read Lord of the Rings, there is still time to repent and come to Jesus, right? <laughs> I will be praying for you even this afternoon. But, but in the Lord of the Rings, there's the ring of power. 
And, and everybody wants that ring because the person with the ring, well, has the power and we all want power, right? And, and so everybody wants that ring of power. Uh, and, you know, they, they are convinced that they have good motives. They're convinced that they're going to use that power rightly. They're convinced that their ends are, are good and therefore they can have that power and use it responsibly. And yet, and yet that ring of power corrupts everyone. No matter who gets it, when you get that power, it corrupts you. And so there's this temptation to, to gain power so that we can uh, enforce our vision of justice. But when we get that power, it corrupts us. Yes, we're convinced that we have good motives and we won't misuse it, but don't be naive. Power corrupts everyone. It's why the oppressed turn right around and become the oppressor. So Jesus gives us a different model. Jesus lays out a different way. He does not take his power and enforce his vision. Jesus comes and relinquishes power. He lays aside his rights. Jesus comes and instead of trying to defeat his enemies, he dies for his enemies. Jesus comes and instead of condemning those that disagree with him, he loves them. And Jesus says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, I could call down a thousand angels and do my fighting for me. But instead, he goes to the cross to free us from sin. And Jesus lays out a different model that is self-sacrificial. He refused the ring and laid down his life. Now, when you, when you begin to speak up, you might be for the vulnerable. You might be praying. You might be serving. You might be giving. You might be voting. You might be protesting. And all those things can be good, but never put your hope in them. Never put your hope in your work, no matter how righteous it is. Always put your hope in Jesus, for he is the just king who is coming to establish his kingdom. Dr. King knew this as well. He said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. He did not say that because he believed that human beings are getting better and better and one day the world will be okay. He said this because he knew that King Jesus was coming and would establish his just kingdom here on earth. Don't, don't root the, 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 the hope for justice in your work or in humanity getting better, but root it where Dr. King did, in the truth of the scriptures, in Jesus. Because it's then, it's then when Jesus returns that Amos 5, 4, uh, 5.24 will be right. That's when justice will roll down like a river. Let's pray. Jesus, we wrestle with this issue in our own life of who's our source of moral authority. And there's something inside of us that ever since Adam and Eve sinned against the garden that we think we can make those decisions. We will determine what's right and wrong. We will be like God. Just in our own personal life, Lord, right now, we want to submit to you. We want to obey you. You are our authority. Our authority in our money, in our time, in our thoughts, in our body. You're the authority on our calendar and our values and our priorities. We listen to you. We obey you. We humbly bring a humble heart before you, God, and say you are a king. 
And then we look around at this confused world and we pray for our world and we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth that is in heaven. We pray for those in our own church and all uh, in our community and all around the world who are the vulnerable, who are the weak and the sick, those who are being taken advantage of. And we pray as a church that we would love them like you loved us that we would serve them like you served us, that we would speak up for them and advocate for them just like you did for us. May we be known as your people, loving our just God, pursuing justice in this world. Let justice roll down. Amen.